I want to say uh, welcome to everybody here, especially if it's your first time in person or joining us online. If it's your first time, welcome to you. The Story Church exists to inspire non-religious people to follow Jesus. So we're not going to give you any high-pressure sales pitch to join this church or to start giving 10% of your income to this church or whatever, blah, blah, blah. We're just interested in you knowing about Jesus and hopefully you knowing Jesus. And it's as simple as that. And if we don't know each other yet, my name's Eric. I'm the lead pastor here. And I'm going to be doing a little bit of teaching that's on a topic that, um, that is uh, part of a series I'm going to explain in just a minute. But first, I just wanted to say hello and welcome. And uh, whether you're here or wherever you are in the world tuning in, you're part of the story today. Okay, so one thing I've been thinking about this week is how interesting it is that two people can say the same thing and mean very different things. I don't know if you ever noticed this. I know you probably it might not hit you right away like an example, but, but, but have you ever noticed how the same words ordered in the same exact way, spoken verbatim, coming from different sources, can mean very different things? Like, think about somebody who tells you, I love you. That's a very common phrase, right? I love you. Like, if a 30-year-old man looks you in the eye and says, I love you, and you're around the same age, and he's your husband, like, the proper response is to say, oh, I love you too, and to give him a big kiss. Now, if a 30-year-old man looks you in the eye and says, I love you, and you're 14, and he's your gym teacher, like, the proper response <laughs> is to call the cops and uh, give him a restraining order, right? It's like, not all I love yous are the same, but it's the same words, but they mean very different things. One is a term of endearment. The other is a crime, right? It's like very different things. Next Valentine's Day, if, if you're sitting at home and your boyfriend or some, some guy that's into you texts you these words, be my Valentine, precious girl, or something like that, like the, the common reaction, the normal reaction, the appropriate reaction would be to have a heartwarming, all like warm, fuzzy feeling. But if you get the exact same text from a cave-dwelling hobbit that has a personality disorder, and he talks like this, you know, it's like, uh, my precious, like, your reaction's going to be different. That's going to hit you different, and it should, even though, same words, different reaction. All right, Rolando, I should have had you do the voice, bro. Rolando can nail it. I can't, all right? So the Gollum voice, all right. Anyway, uh, so the, the same words, very different, even opposite um, meanings. What do, we, um, what do we attribute that to, all right? Consider um, a more, I guess, everyday example, okay? So consider the phrase, love yourself. Love yourself. It's a very common phrase these days. I hear it all the time. You should love yourself. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting how many different things that can mean, love yourself. If you're struggling and someone encourages you to love yourself and you know them and you know where they're coming from and what they mean by that is because God loved you when you were nothing, God loves you at your lowest point. God loved you when you were nothing but a filthy sinner, and Jesus came to love you and die for your sins and redeem you, and, and he made your worthless soul worthy again. So you should love yourself out of respect and honor for the love God had for you first. Yes, love yourself indeed. However, someone else could use the same words 
and encourage you in a very different direction. If you're struggling, for example, and someone tells you to love yourself because they have a belief, very common belief, that no one in the world should be as important to you as you are. Because yourself is the ultimate self in your universe. And yourself should be at the center of your universe. And so the only way to live a happy life is to love yourself, serve yourself first, treat yourself, <laughs> uh, spend all your money on yourself, look out for yourself before anyone else. That's the only way to be happy, this person might say. If that's the case, then I would have to say, hold on. I'm not so sure. Love yourself is good advice. Not all the time. Because it's one thing to say, love yourself. Because even when you weren't lovable, God loved you. Even when you didn't deserve it, God loved you and saved you. Thinking that, getting your mind around that, proclaiming that will help you to live the only kind of fulfilling life there is to live, which is one that is based on loving and serving others before yourself. Because if you believe that about God, then how could you not respond by putting others before yourself? Right? Love yourself, yes, but, but putting others' needs before your own is to be like Jesus. That's the only way to live a truly, sustainably fulfilling life is by putting others before yourself. But it's another thing entirely to say, love yourself because you're awesome. You deserve it. You're amazing. Bruno Mars, you're perfect just the way you are. It's like, it's like if that's where you're coming from, it's a very different thing because then, then you will be convinced that you're good. You're perfect. You don't need to change. In fact, you should never change because the same person that said love yourself said don't ever change. So you should just be who you are and be proud of who you are and expect all the best, the blessings, the Things you deserve, all the love, right? So you should love yourself. Now, that is the fastest and best way to live a life that is perpetually and increasingly miserable. There's nothing fulfilling about that life. And yet we fall for that kind of thing all the time. The exact same words, love yourself, very different meanings. I, I find that really interesting. I was hung up on that thought this week as I prepared um, today's message. The question on my mind and the question I hope you'll consider is how can you know the difference? If the same words can mean two different, in fact, opposite things, how can you know the difference and how can you be sure the one you believe in is the right one? The Bible's answer for that is wisdom. Wisdom. I want us to think about the word wisdom today in the Bible's explanation of wisdom because the Bible lifts up wisdom like 250 times, but we hardly ever talk about it as a concept, as something to cling to and to pursue. So what does it mean to live a life of wisdom, a wise life, a godly life, a holy life? That's what I want us to talk about today. This is message number four in a series of messages called Less Talking, More Walking. Um, this is a six-week series, so we're more than halfway done. It's also an exposition of the letter uh, written by James, the younger brother of Jesus, 1,980 years ago. And one of James's favorite topics to talk about in this letter was wisdom. Wisdom. He wanted us to know the difference between real wisdom and some lesser false version of wisdom. This is what he wrote in his opening paragraph in this letter. 
almost 2,000 years ago. He said, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And then I think there's a little bit more, and it will be given to you. There we go. Ask God, and it will be given to you. The problem is when you lack wisdom, it's so hard to admit because part of being unwise is being proud in your own understanding. And so that's the difficulty that we all face uh, when we lack wisdom. So wisdom, according to James, is the pursuit of maturity. Young people starting school, to be wise is to pursue maturity and completeness. It is to pursue the one thing that once you have it, you need nothing else. You can be poor, destitute, broken, alone, and still wise and have everything. And you can have everything by the world standards. You can be wealthy. You can have it all, success, attention, everything, and be unwise and lack the most important things. Okay, so that's what wisdom is. And James isn't just pulling this out of the air. He's pulling from deep in the rest of the Bible. So in the Old Testament, there's these wisdom books, the most prominent of which is Proverbs. And if you hate the Bible or you don't know that you love the Bible, you don't trust the Bible, I encourage you to still open the Bible to Proverbs. Proverbs is timeless, awesome, often hilarious wisdom that still applies today. I'll give you a few samples of the wisdom in Proverbs. First of all is this idea that wisdom comes from God. So this is Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. For the Lord gives wisdom, and uh, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So if you want wisdom, go to God. There, outside of God, there is no wisdom is the idea here. Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of that, all right? What that means, I know the fear of God is like a little bit of, it's gotten a bad rap, right? We want our kids to love God, but not fear God, because fear is bad. And I understand how we get there, but we should be very careful to, to not teach our kids that we should only love God and not fear him. Because if you grow up not fearing God, you will, first of all, um, grow up excusing all kinds of bad behavior and habits and things like that. If you grow up not fearing God, you will also grow up fearing things that are less than God, less important, less powerful, less consequential. If you don't grow up fearing God, you will grow up fearing aging, fearing loneliness, fearing death, fearing whatever. But if you fear God, you don't have to have any fear of anything else or anyone else. It's actually liberating, not oppressive, to understand to fear God. It's just, it's a humble posture before your maker. It is the only right posture to have before Almighty God. Is one of humility, to say, I'm not perfect, I'm not God. Lord, show me your ways, that kind of thing. Be, be my Lord, and I'll be your servant. That's the only right way to look at this. So the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. So no matter how wrong he is, he's right. Anybody know anybody like that? Anybody at church right now with somebody who's like that? <laughs> just kidding. If you're raising your hand, you might be the problem. Just be careful, all right? That's the problem with wisdom, all right? So <laughs> be careful, be humble. The way the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. A wise man might be intelligent. He might be a PhD, or he might be a young man who doesn't have all the knowledge yet. It doesn't matter. Either way, he's open to advice. He's open to counsel. He's always listening for wisdom. That's a humble heart. It's a humble spirit. And that's how we grow. That's the difference wisdom makes. 
right? It matures us. And finally, there's this, I, I love this example because it's got a little humor to it, a little bite from Proverbs chapter 17. The one who knows much says little. A wise man remains calm. Even fools who keep quiet are thought to be wise. As long as they keep their mouths shut, they're smart. <laughs> All right. If you don't know what you're talking about, if you don't talk, no one knows, okay? So kids, going into your new classes, there's a little advice for you, there's a little advice as we grow up. Adults at work, sometimes in those work meetings, it's better just to stay quiet. Nobody really knows how ignorant you are. There's something, there's something good about that, something wise about it, all right? So the Old Testament unpacks wisdom um, almost 200 times. And then the New Testament comes along and talks about, or lifts up wisdom much less frequently. But it's not because wisdom doesn't matter in the New Testament. It's because wisdom is revealed in its fullness in the New Testament, not in words on a page, but in a person. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, um, in, that, in that letter, Paul writes of Jesus as the embodiment of wisdom. He said, it's because of God that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. So the wisdom from God, the wisdom of God, you could say, is embodied now in the person of Jesus. And if you want to know what wisdom looks like, look at Jesus. And if you lack wisdom, if you're not like Jesus, ask God to show you, to give you that wisdom, and he will give generously, all right? That's the message in the New Testament about wisdom. Now, if you're sitting here thinking wisdom, kind of meh. Kind of a boring topic, to be honest. I think I've got some of it already. I might have more of it than you think. I'm pretty smart. And even when I don't know the answer, that's why God made Google. Am I right? Like, like if you think you're wise enough, just know that that mentality is the first sign of a lack of wisdom. And there might be more at stake here then you think it's not a matter of being right or having the answers. It's not a matter of winning arguments or coming out on top in the culture wars. What's at stake here is your heart and your home. In other words, the life, not just your own, but the lives of those around you in your sphere of influence, your family, your friends, your coworkers, everybody who sees you on a daily basis or a regular basis can be impacted in one way or another by your wisdom or lack. Thereof. That's the urgency that the Bible puts around wisdom. So let's get into today's passage from this letter in James, chapter 3. If you have the Bible in front of you, you can grab it. Um, some of our rows are full, so there's only so many Bibles. Whoever grabs it first gets it, all right? So it's first come, first serve. But y'all be sure and share. And, and uh, if you have your own, you can open it or you can click your uh, Bible app open as well. Whatever the case, uh, James chapter 3, verse 13 is where we're going to read today. So James wrote, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it. Again, James is like all about show me. Like you think you've got the right belief, show me. You think you've got, you say the right things, show me what you're doing behind the words. Show me who is wise. He says, show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility. There's that word again, humility. Keep that close to your heart. That comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition um, in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. 
going to stop right there, and we're going to read a couple more verses in a minute, but I just want you to see this, what James is doing. There's two kinds of wisdom, he says. So not all wisdom is the same. Not all wisdom is created equal. One wisdom is what he calls heavenly, godly wisdom. And there's another wisdom, though, that the majority of us adhere to usually, and that is what James calls earthly wisdom. I want to unpack this concept just a little bit. He says, you know that someone has godly wisdom not just by what they know or what they say, but by looking at the life they lead behind the words that they say. Are they humble? If someone you're looking at isn't humble in their posture, but they know everything, they're still unwise. If someone doesn't have a humble posture before God and toward others, even if they have all the answers, they're not worth following because they lack wisdom, real godly wisdom. Without humility, there is no wisdom. Okay, so someone could say the same right answers as someone who's actually wise and be unwise. Same words, different meaning. I find this concept so interesting because according to the scriptures, one can take you and your family to heaven and the other can bring them into danger of going to hell. Okay, now on the other hand, we've got this earthly wisdom. This earthly wisdom is based not on humility, but on selfishness. So when you hear someone speaking, don't just hear their words, but look at their life. Is their posture selfish? Are their intentions envious or self-seeking or bitter? If so, even if, you know, they have all the answers, doesn't matter. That's just earthly ambition. It's demonic, James would say, no matter how good their answers sound. And this would apply to your favorite politicians. This would apply to TV preachers. This would apply to anyone who's trying to claim influence over your life in any way. Always examine the life behind the words. Look at their relationships. How are they with those closest to them? Are they respectful of their wife? Do they talk bad behind their husband's back? Are they raising up kids that, you know, exemplify this wisdom? Or do their kids resent? them deeply or rebel against, you know, there's always something more behind the story, behind the words, all right? So it's how we tell earthly wisdom from godly wisdom. Now, it's interesting that James calls it earthly wisdom instead of just white lies or or bald-faced lies or destructive lies. He doesn't say they're lies, He says their earthly wisdom, and the reason is clear to me, it's because these things that are earthly wisdom, these beliefs, are almost exactly right. Earthly wisdom speaks to the same longing in every human heart that godly wisdom speaks to, and it's almost exactly right. That's what's so tantalizing about earthly wisdom. That's why so many, even well-meaning people, even Christians, fall for earthly wisdom because it's 99.9% right. Oftentimes, earthly wisdom will use the same words as godly wisdom, but twist it just a little, just a little 0.1% difference, just a little, all right? Let me give you a couple of, of examples of where I, where I see this, all right? So um, this is still the, the go-to move that uh, Satan uses. It has been ever since the Garden of Eden, really. Just twist God's word just a little bit. And in the church these days, there's a real threat in the American church, I think, 
of succumbing to, to earthly wisdom by taking something God really said and just twisting it a little. 99.9% right, but it's the 0.1% that'll get you. Rarely does a day go by when I'm online that I don't come across uh, some kind of a meme on social media that's something like this one, all right? This is a meme with Jesus where uh, Jesus says, hey, remember when I said do not judge? Yeah, I meant that. And Jesus is all like snarky about it. You can tell. It's like at that look in his eyes, like, yeah, I meant that. All right. It's like the, there's a certain self-righteousness to this, um, but it's well-intended. Like the people that post memes like this are usually Christians or maybe former Christians that just got so upset by the church or judgy Christians. And in some cases, they have a real good point. Christians can just go over the top with, you know, this hyper-judgmentalism. We've all seen the results of that. But, y'all, just suggest that Christians should never judge sin because Jesus said the words, do not judge, which he did say, to suggest that we should just overlook sins and let everybody do whatever they want and just you know, to each his own, is to be willfully ignorant about the fullness of even that quote where Jesus said, do not judge. Like, let's look at the whole quote, all right? So Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, Jesus said verbatim those words, do not judge. I meant that, right? You can almost hear the meme, right? Do not judge. And then he went on to say, or you too will be judged, all right? So that's on point with the meme. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. With the same measure you use, it will be measured unto you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. Now, up to that point in the passage, the meme looks really good. Like, yeah, don't judge. He meant that, right? And then at the end, he goes, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So if to judge your brother's sin is, uh, is the metaphor is to take the speck out of his eye, Jesus is saying you should still help him with it. Just be sure your posture is humble first. Be sure you fear the Lord first. Be sure you get on your knees and search your heart first and get called out for your sin first so that you can see clearly enough to humbly, more accurately judge the sins of your brothers and sisters. Now, does that hold up with do not judge? I meant that. No. Of course, Jesus doesn't want us to just have a free-for-all at church where everybody just does whatever they want, whatever looks right in their own eyes, and then we just come and act like everything's okay. Of course, that's not love. We, oftentimes, Christians will do that in the name of love, but that's actually pretty hateful to let each other walk around with stuff in our eyes all the time. It's like really not love. But we can be so easily fooled. It's just earthly wisdom. And there's more where that came from. I came across this meme, which is even trickier for people that don't really know the difference between godly wisdom and earthly wisdom. This meme was uh, on a very influential United Methodist Pastors um, Facebook page this week, and it got like thousands of likes, hundreds of shares, dozens and dozens of comments that were all in the affirmative, most, mostly all in the affirmative. And in this meme, it's Jesus saying, guys, to a bunch of religious, like they're literally holding Bibles. They're, they're Bible-thumping Christians, clearly, right? And they're very 
angry about it. Like, none of them are smiling. Or it's, it's like, guys, Jesus said, the difference between me and you is you use Scripture to determine what love means, and I use love to determine what Scripture means. Now, that's a very satisfying sentiment. If you struggle with Scripture, you struggled in the past with people that hold Bibles and, you know, judge you or whatever, I understand how and why this can be so tempting to believe in. Of course, we've all been hurt by Christians that judge us. And so this post is bound to get a lot of attention. A lot of Christians and former Christians saying, yes, amen, we need to show those Christians who say they're Christians, but really they just are Pharisees. We need to show them how to determine what Scripture means with love, just like Jesus did. Okay, all right. So what's wrong with this meme? Well, in our rush to feel good about ourselves, <laughs> it's often easy to miss the fact that this thing we would love for Jesus to have said is something he never said and never would say. Jesus would never say either part of that. So the first part is you can't go to Scripture to find out what love is. <laughs> that is never something you would hear come out of Jesus' mouth. Jesus would never say, if you want to know what love is, don't look in the Bible. Come on. Jesus said every word of the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Every word will come to pass. Every word is true. Never did he disparage or contradict Scripture. Jesus would never say you can't really know what love is by looking at Scripture. In fact, he would say, be careful that you don't define love elsewhere. Be careful that you only define love using Scripture. Otherwise, you get to define what love is. And y'all, I don't know about you, my definition of love changes daily. Truly, I can think of times in my life when I never would have said that love could look like a grown man threatening violence to teenage boys. But I have a 14-year-old daughter now who's starting high school tomorrow. And now my definition of love is, is changing. It's adapting. It's evolving a little bit in high school boys, in case you're listening. I love you, but <laughs> that may not mean what you think. I have a particular set of skills. <laughs> I don't know, Liam Neeson. All right, so I, I think, I think the, the danger of defining love on our own terms is that we are uh, always changing, and so is our definition of love. So, of course, the Bible says God is love. Of course, love is preeminent in Scripture. Of course, Jesus said the most important law is love. Of course, Paul said, without love, I am nothing. Of course, John said, for God so loved the world. Of course. But do you know where you find all of those things that I just quoted? <laughs> In Scripture. That's right. So let's not be fooled here by something that sounds good, but in fact is something that is antichrist. Because our definitions change all the time. Now, using love to determine what the Bible says is just more earthly wisdom, all right? So, I don't know, using, uh, you know, using uh, the Bible to determine what love is is the only way to avoid that, that uh, problem. I, I prefer to use John Wesley's approach, all right? So, uh, John Wesley's not just 99.9% .9 right here, he's 100% right. <laughs> You got to be careful with that last point, 1%. Wesley said this about the Bible. It's dangerous to depart from Scripture 
most of the controversies which have disturbed the church have arisen from people's wanting to be, listen, wise above what's written, not contented with what God has already plainly revealed there. That's where the danger is. It's not in finding out how to be smarter, how to outsmart the Bible. It is, it, the truth is found in submitting and surrendering yourself humbly before God and his word. In the name of Jesus, that's, that's where the truth is. Let's get to the rest of this uh, quote from James, this passage. Verse 16 is where we'll start in James 3. He said, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. So earthly wisdom brings disorder and every evil practice. That sounds extreme because what's wrong with believing memes like the one I just showed you? It can't be that consequential. Every evil practice, just for believing Jesus said, do not judge, and we shouldn't judge. Well, we're going to talk more about that in a second. He says, the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, and then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So, according to James, there is this disorder. There is this uh, earthly wisdom that leads to disorder in every evil practice. This does seem hyperbolic, but I will tell you that I have witnessed this personally. It is absolutely true that believing in something that's just 99.9% true and repeating it and preaching it and living according to it will slowly but surely bring you down. And not just you, but your family, your household, your friends, your sphere of influence. You might not always see it happening right away, but it happens. And, and you might think, well, isn't it better to believe in, in, the, in the almost truth? Truth, you know, isn't it better to believe 99.9% of the truth than not to believe anything at all? I would tell you I'm not so sure because there is a false righteousness, a false sense of security that comes with believing in 99.9% of the truth. And we've seen this in the seven years since we started the story. We're here to inspire non-religious people to follow Jesus, right? All we want to do is bring people to Jesus and let that be that. I will tell you that the work of bringing atheist and agnostic unbelievers to Jesus is much easier than the work of bringing someone who's almost there, almost the cultural Christian who's been in church or around church their whole life who's convinced they're a Christian because they go to church, but they've yet to surrender and submit themselves fully to God and to his word and to obey his word, to do what it says. That's the Christian. That's the person that I would say is the hardest to bring to Jesus because of that false sense of security and self-righteousness that's there. So there's a serious level of danger when we find ourselves compelled to believe in the kinds of almost true memes almost true statements and wisdoms that I shared earlier today, all right? That's what makes it so dangerous. But what is that connection then between disorder and every evil practice and earthly wisdom? Listen, if you spend your life believing that your understanding of love is the only arbiter of truth, if you spend your life preaching Proclaiming, sharing on social media platforms, whatever, telling your friends that God does not judge. We should not judge. 
Because to judge is to be mean and ungodly. You will eventually take God off of his judgment seat and replace him with yourself. And you will be much easier on your sins than he would be, I believe. You would let things slide. And the more you let things slide, the easier it gets to let things slide until your life is full of disorder and every evil practice. I'm not speaking as a preacher who's never sinned. I'm preaching, I'm speaking and preaching now as someone who's walked that path and suffered for it. And my family has suffered for it because when I was living according to that earthly wisdom, instead of submitting myself to godly wisdom, I submitted myself and my family to disorder and every evil practice. And I praise God every day that he saved me from it. But now every day I get on my knees and pray, Lord, show me what I'm doing wrong. Show me how to make it right. Not, Lord, you're welcome. I'm so awesome. Like I used to pray. It's a difference in posture. James said, heavenly wisdom is pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, merciful, and fruitful, impartial, and sincere. That's what you're looking for when you're looking at the life behind the words, the life behind the beliefs. And I want you to see how relational they are. All of those words James used are words you would use to define or describe people in a healthy relationship. Considerate, sincere, peace-loving. The one who submits and surrenders to godly wisdom doesn't need to win every argument, doesn't need to always come out on top, doesn't mean to need to engage in the culture wars, doesn't mean need to get upset about the things going on in this world. This person just wants to relate as Christ relates, to serve, to love, to give themselves away for the sake of those around them. And in so doing, they build their house on a solid rock instead of on the shifting sands of earthly wisdom. That's how Jesus described the conundrum. He said in Matthew 7, um, later on in that chapter, verse 24, everyone who hears his words and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and yet it didn't fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand the rain came, the, winds, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat the, against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Same word, house, two very different outcomes because of the foundation on which they were built. What is the foundation on which you're building your house? And the people who are living under your roof, either literally or proverbially, so the people in your sphere of influence how are they impacted by your wisdom? Are you submitting yourself to heavenly wisdom that has you in a posture of humility every day, seeking forgiveness, seeking repentance, being redeemed and made new every day, serving others for their sake, not just yours? Or are they being influenced by your submission and surrender to earthly wisdom that has you looking out for yourself, your own attention, your own gain, Right? That has you envious and greedy. You understand that raising a family, according to earthly wisdom, is going to mean raising kids who see the parents they look up to living lives that clearly communicate that our actions, our decisions don't really matter. There's no, there's no consequences in eternity for the things that we do and say. They see that, but they also see godly wisdom. The parents who get on their knees 
and pray. The parents who, when they get out of line or say something wrong or let their temper get away from them, ask their kids for forgiveness. What do your kids see in you? Do they see earthly wisdom or godly wisdom? I pray you will choose today to build your house on the solid rock of the eternal, godly, heavenly wisdom from above. And if you don't have any idea where to begin, follow, Paul's, follow James's advice and just ask for it. And the one who is so generous will be generous with you and he will give you what you seek. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, we thank you for this reminder about wisdom today. We confess, man, it's so easy, so easy to fall prey to earthly wisdom and to the sweet-sounding, um, almost right uh, mantras and memes of our day. Lord, help us to be discerning and wise. Help us to want and seek your wisdom above all else. And Lord, when we lack wisdom, help us to ask for more as we follow Jesus and seek to emulate him. Lord, always seeking more wisdom, more heavenly wisdom as we build our houses upon the rock that lasts forever. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.